So in June, we're going to be talking about spiritual growth uh, through discipline. I've noticed in our church, and this is probably not uh, that surprising in a young church, that some of us sort of lack the discipline necessary for spiritual growth. And we could go into a long theological uh, treatise, so to speak, on what role does God have versus our, you know, we have in terms of our spiritual growth. But I think some of those conversations have already been done and done too much and maybe aren't that helpful for us today, practically speaking. So I'll simply say this. Um, I really remember hearing a statement once that I think kind of solidified it in my mind that we pray as if it all depends on God and work as if it all depends on us. And there's probably a lot of problems with that statement. I think if we unpack it, we'll decide maybe that's not the best one. But the idea that is when it comes to the Spirit working and growing within us, the Spirit accomplishes the virtues that we can't accomplish on our own. The flesh is always opposed to the spiritual realm, and we just have no ability to do that. But with that said, it takes a lot of our surrendering and active obedience to God to allow the Holy Spirit to really work and make the changes He wants to make in us. And if we err too much on either side of, well, the Spirit will do it, I'll just wake up and, you know, by osmosis, tomorrow I'll be virtuous. Uh, that'll be about as ineffective as deciding that I'm going to become a compassionate person simply by habit and hard work and diligence. It just doesn't work either way. Uh, the Christian truth is that the Holy Spirit takes what little effort and ability we have, but constant and diligent effort, and transforms that into virtuous work. And you think about that. Over and over again, God uses people's pathetic attempts at Righteousness, holiness, strength, uh, and then shows just how much his power can accomplish in those that see themselves as weak and surrender to his power. Uh, Paul and Corinthians, the wisdom of men is nothing compared to God's foolishness, which is this weird statement in the first place. But God can do amazing things uh, with our effort, but our effort absolutely has to play a role in the equation. So we're going to talk about this over the next few weeks. Um, first, though, I want to define for you kind of what, what, what we mean by spiritual discipline, because maybe that's an idea that is old and maybe antiquated. Maybe there's other words that we ought to probably use for it. But uh, I'll take the definition from Dow, uh, Dallas Willard's book, uh, Spirit of Disciplines, because I think it's really, really helpful. Okay? Um, so the first definition, I probably should have written this up. I, I attached the page, but it was kind of hard to read. So I'm going to post this on our Facebook page today, and uh, we'll just sort of go from there. Uh, but the very, very first thing is that it incorporates our body, mind, and soul, okay, or spirit, however you want to think about that. Some of us get a little bit too obsessed with thinking about spiritual discipline as something that happens in our brains. And as an aside, in July, we're going to transition out of the spiritual growth uh, you know, series and into apologetics. And the idea of defending faith, thinking about faith, presenting faith. Uh, to our culture in ways that are really uh, helpful and useful to them. And one of the biggest ones is for us to recognize that people, when it comes to spirituality today, aren't that interested, or at least not as much as they used to, in trying to use their brain to understand God. Okay? A lot of the theological and rational arguments that were so popular in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s uh, and in what was called the modern movement, and trying to kind of make God scientifically um, understandable or theological truths 
rationally understood, that's just sort of fallen in the wayside. It's not that important anymore. Uh, Pascal once said that the heart has reasons that the mind can't understand. It's kind of that same idea. A lot of folks in our culture today are much more interested in seeing the gospel presented as a story, a narrative. Hmm, kind of reminds you of how Jesus taught. Rather than a systemic or systematic presentation of certain facts or truths or beliefs that we have to have. And so spiritual disciplines are just as... uh, uh, applicable to our body and what we do, our emotions, that it is our mind. And sometimes when we try to will our way through mental thinking to be disciplined, we'll fall short. So, the discipline, spiritual discipline, is something that engages our mind, body, soul, all of that stuff. Uh, number two, a spiritual discipline is a very, very hard to develop. But once we do, it becomes like any skill that's hard to develop. There's an amazing joy involved in it. It's just like, whoa, I learned that. I was showing off one of my welds to Willie yesterday. Willie apparently is a very, uh, uh, someone who has high expectations, okay? Because he's ready after two weeks to be as good as I am at welding. And I can't get through the point that it's taken me years, really years, to be even decent at it. And even then, I only showed him the best weld that I had. I didn't show him all the junkier ones in the back. I just wanted to make him feel particularly... Uh, you know, bad about his own well. Brandon's quite here, and he's quite really <laughs> <laughs> I won't even try to unpack that statement. <laughs> Willie, we're done with race and the gospel. That was last semester. We're not, not talking about race anymore, okay? Um, yeah. So, uh, it takes a long time, and it's like anything, you know, once you get good at it, you, you sort of embrace the fact that, whoa, you know, that, that happened, I'm good at that. Well, spiritual discipline is the same way. It takes a lot of work. N.T. Wright talks about, and I can't quote it exactly, but we read an article with our leader group this morning called The Science of Sinning Less. And I really encourage you to read it. It's really interesting. It's basically a, a Christian a, a neuroscience student, along with a journalist, who do research on... Uh, what sociologists have found about self-control. Really, really interesting research. And one of the main things that uh, they talk about is just how hard it is to build habits. They use the example of us riding an elephant and that we have all these automated behaviors, okay? And these automated behaviors are like the elephant. It just gets moving and it's going to get moving. And there's not really a lot of direction to it, but there's a lot of power to it. And when we want to try to control our thoughts and, and plan, we're like that little guy on top of the elephant trying to move it in a particular direction. That's going to require a lot of work, and that person's going to get really, really tired of doing that. And so most of our life is automated. We just do stuff automatically without really thinking about it. And one of the real hard things about discipline is spiritual discipline requires us to think about it. So it's hard work. Spiritual discipline is hard work. Um, and, but it can become rote over time. And T. Wright makes the statement that, you know, uh, virtue is the thousands of decisions we make day in and day out. And then the first time after a thousand, it becomes rote and, and uh, automatic. That's basically virtue. It's the, all the small stuff. It's not just waking up one day and being good at something. Uh, and in our uh, society where we love ease and uh, we expect quick results... Spiritual disciplines are particularly really difficult for us. All right? The third uh, definition is that spiritual disciplines are not virtuous in and of themselves. Okay? They lead to the Spirit doing virtuous things in us. 
Prayer is not a virtue. Prayer can be bad. Rest can be bad. Solitude can be bad. Meditation can be bad. The list goes down of all the different ways, and particularly the early church fathers showed us this through their misuse of the spiritual discipline. They can be bad. They're not virtuous in and of themselves, but they can lead to virtue as the Spirit will work in them as we use them in in terms of discipline in our lives. We practice those things uh, that are hard. So I think if we think through those uh, definitions, that'll be a little bit helpful. I only want to make one point about this in in introducing it, okay? And that's that spiritual discipline is no more difficult today than it's ever been. I think sometimes we make excuses. Well, we live in a society that this and this, a society that's less spiritual, that's less focused, that's less whatever. And I will bore you with Christian history if I need to prove this point, okay? Because I wrote it out, but then I decided no one's going to really want to hear this. Uh, So I probably won't say it. But throughout Christian history, at every time period, spiritual discipline, the way that Paul and Jesus explained it, was difficult for different reasons. Okay? It's no difficult in our day and time. Humans have always struggled with spiritual disciplines because of our very nature that fights against uh, those things spiritual in our life. We just need God to be able to grow in these areas. So don't buy into the myth that somehow in our society, you know, this thing is so much more difficult uh, to deal with. Okay? I want to give you an example. I have a little picture up here that's uh, kind of interesting, or at least it's interesting to me. I'm pretty bad at coming up with illustrations that are interesting to other people. I think that means I'm selfish, but uh, that light's too far. I can't go that far to turn that off. That is just way too far. <laughs> Anybody know what this is? Damascus steel, right? It's become popular language now. It's a what? Joseph's like, what? What's Damascus steel? Yeah, that's actually a really good. Uh, I'll, I'll just tell you what. Uh, David said it's where they take steel and it's actually a variety of different steel alloys and then they heat it and heat it and heat it and keep folding it over over itself at least 300 times uh, for it to be truly Damascus steel. Now, the true Damascus steel process has been lost to us over history and so a lot of things claiming to be Damascus steel aren't really Damascus steel today, which there's probably an illustration just in and of that kind of thinking in terms of you can buy Damascus steel from China that looks really good uh, but that literally will break uh, or lose its uh, strength pretty quickly after its use. But true Damascus steel is done by only a few people, uh, and it requires pretty much the highest level of skill when it comes to metalworking. Now, Damascus steel is not the strongest steel. There's plenty of steels, exotic alloys, and steels that, uh, that are stronger than this today. The point is, though, that this is an incredibly painstaking and long process, right? And it requires, I mean, again, 300 layers mixed together. You can just imagine, if you've ever worked with metal, it's not that malleable, right? Lots of heating, lots of cooling, lots of knowing what you're doing. Not only to get a pattern like this, but to actually get a razor that, you know, can cut. And this is a a guy, Rob Thomas, who's not the leader of Matchbox 20, uh, but actually a swordsmith, knifesmith, Damascus steel specialist, okay? But the reason I brought this up is because appearance-wise, and I should have probably just 
got up another picture of a Chinese version of Damascus steel, a uh, cheap product that you could buy online because they look virtually the same, okay? And yet, uh, you know, the true test uh, of the steel is whether or not it will cut, how long it will keep its edge, and a variety of other things. And spiritual disciplines are often the same. We have people in our church that often look very similar in terms of their spiritual, uh, you know, um, journey, in terms of their spiritual skills, whatever else. But it's only in times of incredible pressure and stress that we really determine uh, someone's spiritual discipline. The stuff that actually has gone on to bring them to the point that they're in. And this is why it's really important. Spiritual discipline isn't exactly something to easily be seen in the life of an individual unless it comes under constant stress. Uh, and that's one of the things that, uh, that I, I want to remind you of is that spiritual discipline uh, is, is something that's, that's sort of vague and can often uh, go hidden, uh, but is something in our lives that, uh, uh, that you know, will pay huge dividends uh, as we, uh, we battle some of the most challenging things. And that leads me to the, the, the final definition of it, is while it's not virtuous in and of itself, it allows us to handle the most intense, uh, you know, things that come our way in life. Many of us were just, uh, there was an illustration once that the president of Regent College gave about uh, flexibility and about transition. He talked about people being glass people, metal people, or plastic people. The glass people break very easily, and they have to be very careful that they don't allow transition to overcome uh, their physical, emotional, and mental uh, you know, expectations or limits. Metal people tend to just, nothing kind of affects them, um, but they're also not, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to see what's going on, and you know, it goes on to make these illustrations. The point is simply that uh, in times of absolute challenge and difficulty, uh, spiritual discipline is the thing that allows us to, uh, to make our way through those, which themselves can be a huge testimony to God's glory and goodness, right? Being able to, to, to go through those. So, um, yeah, without going through all of these, you know, past ways, I'll, I, I will tell you that in our own climate, we, uh, you know, we have our own issues. Uh, the four E's that I've kind of come to believe are maybe the strongest forces against spiritual discipline in our society are number one ease we really 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 want things to be easy and if they're easy there's just a natural draw to them and maybe some of this is because we want to feel successful and so when we can accomplish a lot of easy things we feel more successful than if we fail in a really hard thing and because we focus so much on achievement and success as a sign of being important, being good, being valuable, doing a lot of easy stuff can make us feel pretty good pretty quick. <laughs> and maybe that's part of it. But ease. Ease does not lend itself towards being a value that really helps us grow in spiritual discipline because spiritual disciplines are just simply not easy. I don't care if you have a personality that's decently self-controlled. Really being able to uh, be spiritually disciplined and self-control might not come easy for you. It probably won't. Even if that's your you know, personality trait. The second one is it's expediency. We want things really, really quick. Quick, 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 quick results. And this certainly falls, these kind of overlap with each other. But we want expediency. We want something to pay off immediately. And, and so that makes us incredibly practical people. We don't have time for philosophy. We don't have time for many high lofty ideas. We just want something to pay off and pay off quickly. Otherwise, our attention is somewhere else. <laughs> now, 
I'm going to say these things as being things that are run counter to spiritual disciplines. But we've got to recognize that these are just our values. And values, societal values, aren't necessarily bad by nature. They're just our values. We can't ignore them and go back to a time when times were easier and the values were different. And that's not going to work. It's just this is what we've got. All right? And we're going to have to work within that and find new and fresh ways of experiencing the gospel within that value system. We just are. And we're going to have to speak the gospel to people in ways that connect up with that value system. It might sound weird and strange, but actually, as I'm going to go into when we talk about here in apologetics in a moment, there are some opportunities these values uh, are, are helping us with. But I, I just want to recommend that every society has its own struggles uh, against developing discipline. Expediency number three is entertainment. One of my favorite questions I ask my students at the beginning of the semester, but I'm convinced that this is one of those answers that they give, but they don't mean, uh, but who knows, is if you could pick one thing, one thing that you don't want your professor to be. You just can pick one. And I put unorganized, and I've told you this before, some of you are fine. Unorganized, rude, argumentative and critical, or boring. 90% of my students always, at least 90%, choose boring. They would rather have a rude, unorganized, argumentative, and critical professor than a professor that's boring. Think about that for a moment. And it really actually works for my favor because I tell them at the beginning, listen, I'm all of those things, but I'll never be boring. Okay? <laughs> but I will absolutely be rude, critical, and unorganized, but never boring. <laughs> So you are in absolutely the right class. Well, that, that simply shines light on the fact that one of our main values as a society is we want to be entertained. Something has to be presented to us as interesting. Now, we might not actually understand it at all, okay? But as long as it's presented as interesting, this is why people love TED Talks. Because they get done with an eight-minute video and they're like, yeah, I understand that. And you try to get them to teach it or understand you know, no, no one can be articulate what's being said. In fact, schools, I, one of the famous examples of this is Angela Duckworthy's uh, work on grit in schools. And, you know, she gives this eight-minute video on the real big difference between kids making it in poor schools and not are their grit. They just have to have grit. And schools apparently love this. That her, her research doesn't really say exactly what the TED Talk summarizes it, but we can't blame her. It's how would you ever summarize research in an eight-minute video? Um, so schools start employing these methods that she's talking about and have disastrous consequences, okay? And this is a huge fallout. What's a fallout because we love for things to be entertaining to us. And so we'll just, you know, have them. I'm amazed at movies. I can't watch movies anymore. Too long. It's just too long and boring. You could just say that small thing in like a short story or like in, in books are the same way. They're too long, too fluff, too fluffy. Okay? Just give me that story in like a five or ten minute presentation and I'll love it and move on. But two hours of this story that's not really developing, it's just a bunch of visuals. I get bored. I watch videos in like 15 minute segments now. And sometimes I can't even do that. Uh, even if it's a good movie, I'll still watch it. And that's my own restlessness and ADD and whatever else. But we love to be entertained, okay? And entertainment makes spiritual disciplines really tough because spiritual disciplines aren't that entertaining. They're tough. 
and, uh, and it's not really interesting, you know? And if we're going and trying to, uh, you know, look uh, to be entertained when we're in the middle of resting or meditation or prayer, we are really going to be struggling, okay? Uh, now, there are some entertaining and engaging things we can do, absolutely. But entertaining, I don't think so. Okay, and then the last one is efficiency. And the efficiency I don't mean in terms of scientific, uh, you know, technical, making sure that it's efficient. I just mean this, this goes in a lot to our idea of expediency. We want things to be practical. We want them to work. Uh, and if they don't work, they require too much effort for too little payoff, we're on to the next thing. And we can't do that when it comes to spiritual discipline. All right, I'm moving on because I've already taken up too much time. So we're going to unpack some of these ideas this next month. Try to talk a little bit more about spiritual growth and about developing discipline. And uh, I know this sermon topic isn't near as entertaining and controversial as race and the gospel. Um, but hopefully it will be just as meaningful in terms of guiding uh, your walk with Christ and uh, as you come to understand God more and, and learn about what he's uh, trying to do in your life. All right, so I'm going to run quickly through the apologetics intro. And the reason I'm doing this here rather than doing it uh, in a few weeks after we're done with uh, the spiritual growth series because I don't want to waste another Sunday on intros. I hate intros. And, uh, and, and, and plus, I want you to be thinking about this because some of you, you know, you can start looking into these things now, getting interested and in reading some things and contributing because we're not going to have a forum probably for worship like we normally do. But that doesn't mean that you can't participate in our services. If you've got an idea, if you've got a statement you want to make, if you're being led by the Spirit to present something, graphical, visual, whatever story, please always follow those uh, leanings and just, you know, be strong and, and come up to one of us and be willing to, uh, to want to share that with the, with the body, okay? All right, so apologetics. Apologetics is kind of a weird term, kind of like spiritual discipline in some ways. We think about apologetics, and most of us think immediately of defense of the faith. It's not really what apologetics is. It's kind of like comedy, Greek comedy, right? It's not really funny. It's like tragic. Like, what the heck? Uh, apology is not so much defense, nor is it actually apology. Like, you're not apologizing. I'm sorry, I believe this. Uh, apologetics is an awful word for what we're actually doing in uh, in apologetics, but we're stuck with it. We don't have a better word. The next best word is evangelism, and that word's just as dirty in postmodern context. So I'm not for sure we need to come up with a whole word, another word, as much as we just need to understand what it is we mean when we're talking about apologetics. And I think the best explanation of apologetics is simply translating the good news of Christ into our culture. That's it. That's all it is. It's the timeless truths into the societal context we're in. That's all it is. It's not defending. It's not trying to prove something. Too much of apologetics is defined by the modernist movement, which was all about rational arguments. The problem with that, and one of the reasons many of us have a lot of anxiety when it comes to apologetics, is because we think we have to prove some arguments to someone. That's, that's old school. That's Back in the past, we need to kind of move on from that whole apologetics movement of the 60s and 70s and move to the postmodern context that we're in today, which in some ways is much easier and much more friendly than the kind of, you know, knockout argument style stuff that we see and saw, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. So translating the good news of Christ into our uh, society. Yeah, guys, I, I, this is my second point. My only uh, point for this section, I just have two points, easy enough, is postmodernism is just as fertile a field for the good news as any other human philosophy. 
Okay? We talk about postmodernism. For those of you who are not philosophy people, modernism, postmodernism is really not that hard to understand. Modernism is just the idea that we came up with a couple hundred years ago that we're going to prove everything that has significance. Science is going to be the new thing. It's going to make our societies great. It's going to make people great. It's going to do everything we need it to do. And then we have the Industrial Revolution. And then we have slavery. And then we have World War II. And then we have nuclear weapons. And then, okay, this isn't such a great way of thinking. Science looks like it does a lot of what religion does in terms of having the ability to oppress people. So in the 50s and 60s, kind of in association with the civil rights movement, a number of other things that were going on with the world, uh, scientists begin to rediscover some of the French existentialists who wrote things like, how do we even know we're in existence? You know? Truth is relative, you know, all these other things. But one of the things that was helpful, particularly from sociology during that time period, is the statement that most of our reality is just constructed. We just construct it. And most of us aren't that interested in reality as what is actually happening, as much as is how we perceive reality and what's happening. Anytime you've talked to someone and walked away from a conversation, and then only to find out later you both had two different ideas of what you said, this is social construction of reality. What's the reality? Who's right? Well, your perception drove a lot of your understanding about that conversation. Well, perception matters. And that's what postmodernists say, is they say, you know what, most of the important things in life can't be proved in a scientific experiment or a sociological survey. Okay? There are things that go beyond science. That's really the postmodern movement. It just says that the, what, what truth can we really know? What significant truth can we know? If I can't prove my mother's love in a laboratory, uh, and you know, I can't prove where the imagination comes from, then science is limited in what it's able to give us. So we've got to go beyond science to our experience, which is what we have, to understand the reality around us. Now, that's created some problems, no doubt, just like any human philosophy creates problems. But it's also opened up the doors, I think, in a lot of ways, to new and fresh ways to present the gospel, particularly to go back and look at Jesus. Because in the modernist movement, many of us loved Paul. Paul was systematic. He had ideas. He was rational. Because remember, he was speaking to a Greek audience, sort of the father's uh, rational wisdom and thinking. But Jesus was much more Eastern in his approach. He cared a lot more about stories and narrative and getting at pulling at people's heartstrings than he did about trying to get their brain on board with some truth. We got both, and we got both for a reason. And certainly Paul was simply using Jesus' truth to present to the Greek audience that he was around. But it's important for us to understand uh, that apologetics in a postmodern context looks very, very different than in a modern context. And not to say that we still don't have both of those in our thinking. People don't just one day wake up and they're like, oh, modernism, now nah, I'm postmodern now. We've got elements, okay, of modernism. There's no doubt. But uh, our culture, I think, largely, and especially when it comes to religion, is much more postmodern in its perspective. So with that, I, I want to give you a few ideas and thoughts to overwhelm you, and then uh, we'll move on to, uh, to worship. Okay? So I said this already, that modern methods in, in uh, postmodern context leads to a lot of anxiety. When I'm sitting across from someone trying to prove to them the rational evidence of the gospel, I, you know, case for faith, case for Christ, all these things. That may work with a few pretty intellectual people who have obstacles. But most people aren't there, at least in my experience. Okay? Uh, most people, there's some kind of life experience, some heart level emotion, uh, or something that is keeping them from faith. Now, do they have rational questions? Sure. 
But those are the things that are ultimately keeping them from believing in God. In my experience, in today's context, usually not. People don't need some fresh new argument or some fresh new evidence. They need a fresh new perspective that connects up with what they already see with their own eyes and experience. And with that, and this is where things get technical, but I'm not going to go too much into it because I'm going to avoid my teaching, you know, uh, penchant and move on. Uh, we've got to use inductive versus deductive reasoning with most people. I know you're thinking, oh my gosh, back to inductive versus deductive. I still have no idea what these two words mean. I'll never know. It, I'll, I'll post also today with that Word document a few funny videos on the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning. One involves cats, which is always good. <laughs> and the other involves uh, cartoons, which is also always good. And if you have struggles trying to understand the difference between these two, you can learn. It's really actually not that difficult once you've kind of, you know, don't mix them up backwards. Uh, but in science, you got to have both. Simple as that. Basic, logic 101, you got to have both inductive and deductive reasoning. Okay? And, and this is important. I wouldn't explain this to you unless I felt like this, this was an important method, an important tool that Jesus used in his own toolbox when trying to minister to people. Uh, I, I just wouldn't. I wouldn't just teach you this for no reason. Okay? But deductive reasoning takes a general theory, a big thing. Okay? Think about it like deducting taxes. None of you do your own taxes, do you? You bunch of jerks. You go to Walmart and you have that poor guy that doesn't know anything more than you know at you know, Jackson Hewitt doing your taxes and giving you like a $2,000 return. In 10 years, you're going to realize you owe the government like $100,000. But for now, you get a big return and that's all you care about, right? Assuming you actually do your taxes. Yeah, right? Tax return. Wait till you start owing money. Then it's the worst. Um... So, deductions. You're deducting from a large number. Okay, that's, that's, that's the movement of uh, deductive reasoning. Is you're moving from big, some general theory, and they're going to try to prove that theory at the smallest level with evidence. Okay? So if my theory is, you know, uh, that all girls named Chelsea are loud and obnoxious, then I'm going to have to, you know, prove that at the most micro level. I'm going to have to find as many Chelsea's as I can, you know, and prove that they're all loud and obnoxious. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, that is true, isn't it? Um, so, so, big down, you know, big stuff, general theory, down to evidence. That stuff works in, in a modern mindset. Prove something. And in some ways, if someone has a conclusion that they've proven... You can't fight their conclusion because to them, that's the most, you know, evidentiary thing they've got. You've got to start with the preconceived notions that they have, that general theory. You've got to work backwards with them, okay? But that's a whole other discussion for a whole other time. What's important today is that we recognize that most people think inductively. Inductive. You induct someone into a Hall of Fame, okay? You take up one person, put them into a larger group. <laughs> no. Not, not makes sense. Okay, good. I use all these, you know, illustrations in my mind. Apparently, they don't work for you guys. So, David thought it was good. Thank you. So, inductive reasoning is really kind of the opposite of deductive reasoning. You start small with explorative ideas, thoughts. Well, what if this girl named Chelsea is loud and obnoxious? Okay, I wonder if 
all girls in Chelsea are loud and obnoxious. You take your experience that you have at that small level, and then you work outward. <clears throat> now, by nature, inductive reasoning isn't near as strong as deductive reasoning, because deductive reasoning, you're going to have evidence at the end. Inductive reasoning, you're still left with some grand theory that never really started with evidence. It started simply with your experience. But this is why it's important. Most people are not making religious and life decisions based on rational deductive reasoning. They're not testing their th theories and thoughts about life. They're taking something in their experience around them and then creating a grand theory out of it. I experience this when I do this. That must mean every time I do this, this happens and there's my theory. Now those are easy to tear down for rationally speaking. But the point is, they're not rational arguments. So you're not going to work. That's not going to work. <laughs> you're going to have to understand and get into their world and see the experience that they see and then give them another perspective on that experience. Offer them another grand theory that flows out of their experience. Okay? And what that means is we can do a whole lot of if this, what about that? And those are great arguments today when it comes to faith. You know, Grant, if I can use you as an example, I mean, it's too late now, I'm already doing it, but um, had a coworker, and uh, this coworker is a theist, basically believes that God's existence, looks around the world and says, this could have just happened. So the next question then is, can Grant, if, if you know, uh, he's feeling led to, and if this other person is accepting, can Grant begin to say, well, yeah, you can see around you that the, the, the world is ordered, it makes sense, what if... Just like in the world, we see that the world has purpose. What if that purpose reflects a specific God telling us about his, uh, his purpose and his qualities and characters of the person? What if? I'm not saying it has to be. I'm not saying I'm going to prove to you that that's possible. I'm just simply, have you ever considered that the earth itself perhaps communicates certain things about God's character? The way that the earth works. Inductive reasoning is pretty tame. Because it allows us to take people's ideas and experience and just sort of add, what if? Have you thought about this? And in postmodern context, that works great. Because if you come at someone full strength with your arguments about faith, but by they're out of there. They may listen to you out of being polite, but you're gone. The experience itself was unpleasant, and that is more important than whatever was coming out of your mouth. And, you know, this idea that some evangelism is better than no evangelism might work in a modern context, where at least people's ideas and thoughts are being challenged. But in a postmodern uh, uh, context, actually, probably most evangelism is worse than not having said anything at all. Likely, it turns more people off. More people have examples of, of negative experiences with Christian evangelism than they do of positive. Uh, and, and that's a real problem. So if we're going to speak to people in ways that really translate, that does the work of uh, taking the gospel into their language and culture, we're going to have to use some more inductive type methods. I think those are much more helpful. And I'll explain some more about that in, uh, in July. One of the things that's important inductively is to be able to use images and narrative and language translation. Okay? Uh, you got to. People want an image when you talk to them about stuff. They're going to get more from an image. 
So much of our communication today is unspoken communication. Guys, when you're not a rational, uh, you know, deductive person, you don't want to sit and hear someone like what I'm doing explain a lot of stuff to you. You wish you could just have an image that explains it all. <laughs> and we do. We have a lot of images. And, and, and by images, I don't mean like a picture. I mean, it could be a thought, uh, the pound sign for whatever, Twitter, whatever. Hashtag, gosh. You can't speak our culture's language. <laughs> to be an absolute fraud. Um, it's an image. Okay? Connectivity, it's got a lot of different things behind it. Think about this. I was thinking about this one the other day. What's a kid's meal to you? What's a kid's meal? Yeah. Okay, but you're thinking of, of synonymous images like pictures, but what does a kid's meal mean to you? Yeah, Here, so here's the two things that I think are interesting. Grant, I think, just expressed what a kid's meal means to most of us now. Smaller portions. I'm not as hungry. Maybe 20 years ago it actually meant kid's meal. Like you'd be, you know, a little bit weirded out by, you know, someone coming and saying, can I get the kid's meal, which clearly says under 12 years old. But now most of us don't even care, right? In our day and age where we save money, where we, uh, you know, the, the expectation is just not there anymore. Kids meal to us doesn't mean kids meal anymore. It actually means smaller portion meal. That's what I mean by translating an image. What one thing meant 20 or 30 years ago doesn't mean that thing means the same today. Okay? And that's so important when it comes to communicating the gospel to people. Too many people hear gospel words. Words that really the first century authors came up with. And guys, they weren't using spiritual language. They were using modern day language. How many of their words simply came from simple, menial, mundane life? And then all of a sudden, as they translated that into their culture, it took on great meaning. One of the biggest problems Christians seem to have is they can't get out of using biblical words. Guys, biblical words don't mean much to a society that is pretty ignorant of the Bible. Believe it or not, you can make some statements like, that don't have the word faith, salvation, or sanctification in it, and believe it or not, you're still going to communicate the message that needs to be communicated to people. Now, I'm not talking about losing identity in, in this language and the significance of what's being said. What I'm talking about is translating these things, these words that didn't exist before guys like Jesus and Paul used them in the way that they did. we got to do that same thing in our own culture. <clears throat> Otherwise, people lose the meaning or completely get lost in what the heck it is we're saying. Kind of like you guys are lost in what I'm saying. Um, Give us 20 words that you're talking about. Okay. Uh, foot, hand, basket. No. Give us the words. What do I think? I have like a list of words, you know? No, I mean, I, I think in some ways, um, I can probably think of some words that our church and our community have. Uh, but, community is probably one of them, um, but, 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 but some degree this is, and one of the things we'll talk about when we talk about um, you know, one-on-one time with people, this is, I think a lot of it can't be scripted. You've got to be able to use words that aren't so like, I have a list of 20 words that I use every time I talk to someone about faith. People in a postmodern context, everybody has almost their own definition of how words work and what they mean and that becomes really challenging when you don't have a collective or shared man we talked about this with race and the gospel uh quite a bit is all of these words that people some people know what they mean some people don't you know uh, woke was kind of one of those words we talked about well 
that's important when it comes to speaking to people, I think, one-on-one, is you've got to figure out what language they understand. You've got to communicate. Yeah. And it's not so much that you have words that are imbued with all this meaning. It's that you're taking words that people understand and revitalizing and reshaping what it is that they mean to them. And I think that's what's really important. When it comes across as scripted uh, for a postmodern audience, there's just not a lot of um, credibility given to it. It'd be, it'd be better for someone to stumble over what they're trying to say in a postmodern context than to have a real smooth, prepackaged way of saying something. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's not that we can't have prepackaged ideas, and, and those aren't, it's, that's fine. But the problem is when it becomes a, a line that people use over and over again. Remember, one of the ma- major important tools in postmodern thinking is that truth claims are, are we're always going to be skeptical of truth claims. Anything that presents itself as an absolute is going to have to take a lot of scrutiny. And so, yeah, Willie. One example of those words you're talking about, my work, my employee, I tried to tell her that you need to be saved. 30 minutes to explain to her what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. I think what you have to do first, you have to understand what it means. Yeah. I mean, really understand. And that's one of those... Well, Willie's one of the people who does this a lot in my own life. And is a great example of this. Somebody who talks in ways that aren't using what he calls spiritual language. Yeah. I, and I've honestly learned this in real life from Willie. I mean, you know, being able to use language that, that people understand and can think through uh, in their own terms is incredibly helpful. And what Willie said is incredibly important. The person that it helps the most when you're translating the gospel is you, not them. C.S. Lewis said, if you can't explain the gospel in plain language, you're confused. Right. So what he says. And when we're using a lot of words that kind of don't mean anything and are super ambiguous, we're confused. Where a bunch of people in our audience are like, yeah, that. And we're all like leading with, what did he mean by that? That word has come to mean a lot of different things. So that's a hallmark, I think, of, uh, of being able to really understand what you're talking about is when, able you're, when you're able to use very, very simple language uh, to explain it. Okay? Uh, I'm going to end with this quote from Tolkien because I really, really like it a lot. And then we'll uh, take communion and we'll come back and we'll sing through some songs. Uh, he just says, Knowledge is the organ of truth, but the imagination is the... The organ of meaning. Knowledge is the organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. And that's important, and, and I think if I were to unpack what I think he's saying, he's saying that, yeah, we can learn facts, we can study things, and, and we can find truths. But the postmodern contexts are not near as interested in determining what's true. They're much more interested in determining what's meaningful, what's useful. What, what actually means something, okay? Uh, and often that meaning takes the form of individual stuff, but you know, it takes a little while to explain that meaning is, is collective and can be shared. But uh, I love that idea, that if we're going to really speak to this postmodern need of meaning, of what does this mean, okay? Not is this correct, is this right, but is this, what does this, what's the meaning? Why am I doing this? Question everything then we're going to have to be able to use the imagination. And I think Tolkien understood that, like C.S. Lewis understood it, well beyond, uh, you know, obviously uh, the kind of uh, road that our society uh, has taken.
Alright, I'm going to say prayer, and uh, again, this is just an introduction if you're interested in thinking through more of this or uh, studying more of it on your own, you're welcome to listen to the recording uh, or, uh, or talk to me or Leslie. We'll be looking over this for the next uh, two, two months, okay, June and July. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.